as soon as I learned how I learned, it started unlocking how I grew because now I started yeah. investing in learning practices that would actually like yield some outcome for me, right? Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community that elevates designers to become empowered, educated, and effective using EQ-based tools and practices. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Jared Irondu. Jared is a design leader, investor, and advisor. He's currently the VP of Design at Lattice, where they are building people-first HR software to make the time we spend at work more meaningful. Jared is also the co-creator of Playbook and High Resolution, two projects dedicated to furthering knowledge sharing in the design community. We dive into the different aspects of growing as a designer, how developing a growth mindset helps you navigate a career filled with meaning and purpose, tactical approaches to design for impact by investing in lifelong learning, the importance of adaptiveness and challenging the status quo in relation to people of color as well as benefits designers can have from developing a growth mindset. Welcome, Jared, to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So when we were chatting a bit before this of what we're going to talk about, I love that you proposed a few different topics and then started to hone in on a topic of being the steward of your own growth. And I loved those words that you used. But taking a step back before diving into the topic, I'm curious, what made you decide to be a designer? Or do you remember that moment or that story that was like, oh, this is what, this is what I want to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I, I feel like every time anyone is asked this, like you remember like one new detail in the last mm-hmm. time. So when I reflect on mine, I think that, you know, I, I grew up in, a number of places in New York and Sweden and you know Trinidad and Baltimore. And I think that through that experience, I just got really used to noticing things that worked well and things that didn't, that could be improved. But I didn't really know what to do with that information or, or that like pull, if you will, right? Like I, I would just notice things and comment on it to the probably detriment to like people around me just kind of like getting annoyed about it. I do remember that. And that's like a detail that, <laughs> you know, I probably did not like say the last time I was asked this question, right? So it's already like I'm um, triggering some new memories for me. But I think that when I grew up, you know, in Maryland, like going through middle school and high school, I got really attracted to writing. Like I just loved the ability to express, right? And to kind of like help people understand a concept that I came across or that I was pretty excited about. And I kind of would dabble with design on the side, like doing like graphic design stuff for like my aunts or uncles, whether it's like a graphic card or sorry, a business card or like, you know, some piece of collateral. But I didn't, again, really know what that was. It was just a thing that I enjoyed doing. 
And it wasn't until like later in high school that I started to learn about the space of like graphic design. I saw that like idea video that everyone talks about with like the shopping cart and all that. And it started to open up this door for me of like this like other realm of possibility. But yet again, I did not have a word to label it. I didn't have an industry or like a degree to look for. So it was just kind of like information that was like kind of like building up to have some ultimate like explosion of realization or what have you, right? And I think that moment for me came, you know, sometime like in the earlier mid 2000s when I was chatting with a person by the name Randy J. Hunt. I think he's at Grab now, but back then he was at Etsy. And I met him in New York at a conference. And I just got really like attached to him and like connected with him. And you know, I just found his advice to be very helpful in terms of like just navigating this like creativity thing that I was trying to put a label on. And one day he asked me to like hop on a call with him and just like walk me through like some concepts. So I put this simple concept together for like how I would redesign Etsy's homepage. And looking back on it, it was terrible, but it was a great like starting point, right? Yeah. And I remember I was like walking him through it. So in a sense, it was kind of like my first design critique. And at the end of the call, he was like, you know, there's a lot wrong with this, but I think you should explore career in product design, right? So that was mm -hmm. kind of like the last piece of information I needed to know to like understand that there was a space. Now, fast forward some time, I eventually came across a couple of guys. We started a company together and they were like, hey, we want you to be our design co-founder. And that was like really my first like stepping into this career, right? And you can kind of say like the rest is history. But I would say that, you know, everyone says their starting point is not linear and mine was not, right? It was just very much like a data point here, a data point there, a data point there. And over time, I was kind of able to tether those things together and realize that there was this thing that I should really go explore as a career. Yeah. And I feel like it's becoming more and more and more common for folks to not take that linear path. I yeah. feel like for me personally, I did take more of a linear path than most where I wasn't that good at the other subjects in school. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so when figuring out what I wanted to apply to in college, I started taking more like art classes and there was like a graphic mm. arts class in school where yeah. I could make t-shirts and do like screen nice. printing and all of that. And yeah. I thought that yeah. was the coolest thing. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was so cool. And then upon going to school, got into a graphic design program and had a bunch of different jobs in school and really learned that creating logos and posters and all of that was not my strength. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then found out about this thing called UX UI, where before yeah. it wasn't really a thing, but just from networking and talking to people in the Bay Area at the time, they were like, it's this thing, check it out. Yeah, yes, yes. I remember that, UX UI, UI UX, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I love that you highlighted it's not linear and it's picking up the, even if you did go to design school, there's so many different things to what you could do with design and really weaving and pulling in how you can form a career. And I feel like, like tying back into our topic today, I feel like that's such a exemplary example of you having a growth mindset, possibly without yeah. even knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm I'm curious when uh, you uh, did first hear of uh, like the concept of a growth mindset and what it means to you for folks who aren't as familiar. Got it. Yeah. So I can't remember the literal first time I came across it, but the first time it truly resonated with me was when I read uh, Carol Dweck's book that's titled Mindset, and yeah, it's a I, book I, that yeah. I try and read. Yeah I, yeah, I read it. I read it kind of recently, actually. Excellent book. Yes, it really is. I highly yeah. recommend it to anyone listening. 
and what I really resonated with was just this idea of, you know, we have more capacity for lifelong learning than we give ourselves credit for. And that there are many human qualities that, you know, one might argue you're born with, but this book and people who adopt this philosophy would argue that you can cultivate over some period of time, right? So that's kind of like when I really got introduced to the concept itself. And it was this like great moment, like realization moment for me, because one of the things she mentions in the book, which is really striking, is that everyone is on a spectrum of like their learning mindset. And it's actually multiple spectrums. So it's not one just like for your entire mindset or mentality. You might have a growth mindset in one area of your or one aspect of your life and not another, which is very fascinating, right? So like in your yeah. relationship, you might be a this like fixed construct of a person, but like in your career, you might be all around growth, right? In your social life, you might be like fixed construct of a person, but like, you know, in your hobbies, you might have a growth mindset, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, it's first saying like, don't just like baseline yourself, like high level, I'm this or I'm that. It's like, understand that it's a nuance, it's a spectrum. But then once you get that concept, kind of like go a little step further and realize like what aspects of my life might I be really thinking about how I can develop and grow? And what aspects of my life have I more or less plateaued and become very comfortable with the person I am today? You know, I'm so happy you started to break that down. And I feel like on a more like tactical level of folks as designers at a Mm -hmm. more macro level, you can be, I have a growth mindset in my career. And if you do, you can break that down even further of, okay, within that, what parts of my design process am I feeling a bit comfortable and maybe I have a fixed mindset with? And what are the other parts that I can really see myself like leaning into and growing more? So I love love that you called that out because I feel like when thinking about a growth mindset, it's easy to view it as binary of, okay, you have it or you don't. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then I I also think that with the spectrum, as with most spectrums in life, the absolute extremes on either side have their downsides and their costs. Like if you are overly fixed, right? Like to the point of your own detriment, then you kind of miss out on the person that you could be. And if you are overly dogmatic about like everything must change at all times, I'm never good enough. Then you, you know, you run the risk of like just depression to some degree, right? Like you're just always looking at your current self as being inadequate, right? So it's very interesting to think of it as a spectrum and not really optimized for like one end or the other, but more so a side, right? Like, you know, being comfortable with who you are, but also recognizing that you can in fact grow and that the things that you consider good today could atrophy if you don't invest into them. And the things that you consider yourself not good in, you don't have to kind of sit on that, right? But also, you know, with this balancing things, there are things that you might not be good at that you're like, well, you know, when I think about my longer term goals, I don't really have to spend my time investing into that. I can instead invest it elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like this like weird like counterpoint, right? Which is like the idea of growth mindset isn't necessary to get better at all things all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Having more intentionality around how you're investing in those certain areas of growth. Yes. And and I feel, I feel like you alluded to this a bit, but making it a bit more tactical for folks of, so say I'm a like mid or junior level designer and I'm listening to this and I'm like, okay, Jared, you sold me on, I guess, what growth mindset is a little bit, but why is this important to me? I feel like I'm like learning new tools, but like, how can I apply this and really make this kind of mindset tactical in my day to day? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that, you know, any pursuit without some sense of a destination kind of feels not necessarily pointless, but like aimless. 
So if you're learning things, it should be in pursuit of something, right? Whether it is some higher goal or higher outcome that you hope to achieve in your life or like on others, or it could actually just be as simple as like just loving to learn. Like I know people who are like, I'm not learning for any other purpose other than the sake of learning, you know? So it's really like finding that destination or North Star, quote unquote, for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I completely, completely resonate with that. And I feel like that could, it's ways to navigate burnout, but also to navigate a career that's more like fulfilled and aligned with your, to create more meaning and purpose in your work. Yeah. Another thing that we were talking about that you brought up when we were chatting a bit over email was Mm -hmm. having more awareness or unblocking yourself from things that hold you back. And I feel like a lot with cultivating a growth mindset, there are ways of doing that. But I'm curious if you could provide a bit more color around possibly a time where you were able to unblock yourself in a certain career situation and possibly how a growth mindset helped you navigate that. Sure. Yeah. So I know there's this old saying, I think in psychology of like thoughts lead to feelings, feelings to actions and actions to results. So if you think about things that can hold you back, there's a high chance that they will, that they'll have that power over you. So I'm not advocating for like pretending that there are some things that don't hold you or particular groups of people back more so than others, but rather doing your best to not have that fact or observation have too much power over you, right? So it's kind of like finding ways to both accept and challenge it. So an example for me is just the fact that I'm a person of color in tech, right? And I'm a person of color in design and I'm a person of color in design leadership. And the further I go, the smaller the pool of people who can say that gets. And I accept that, but I also challenge it, right? I know that there can be more of me if we continue to invest in bringing more people from like underrepresented backgrounds into our industry. If I don't challenge it, then it can easily begin to eat at me and make me question my own competence. Like, why am I here? Like, should I even be here? Am I a fraud, right? And I've dealt with all these questions internally for myself over the past few years, and I still do, right? It's not anything that like one day just like magically disappears. But I think where growth mindset comes into play here is one in amplifying how I challenge the status quo or challenge this realization, right? Because, you know, growth is basically saying that where you are today is not necessarily where you have to be in the future, right? And how I'm channeling that into like this recognition of like a potential blocker is that where that blocker is today and the power it has on me and people who look like me does not necessarily have to be true in the future, right? And by accepting that, I actually now get to work to try and make that reality true, right? Whether it's like in the interviewing processes we have at Lattice or like in the work that I do in the community or the people who I talk to or the people who I support and like kind of motivate and whatnot, right? So I can think of other things or examples of like, where like I had a blocker and I had to identify it and get past it. But I think that like the chief one in my life and that will probably persist is just the fact that I'm a person of color in tech. Yeah. And it's hard to, I'm not a person of color, but I'm a woman, which, so that comes mm-hmm. with its own yes. <laughs> being, yes, the, being the only woman in, in a room. It also comes with its own gravity and with any like marginalized community in any way, it's, you very much get the little person on your voice on, yeah. your sh- on your shoulder of, are you sure you should be here? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, shh, shh, I'm yeah. trying, I'm, try- I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's exhausting. And I can only speak from it from my own point of view. And 
and been so empathetic to all other like people of color and all other communities that experience this in different ways. But in a more tactical realm, I'm curious how you're able to, because uh, I feel like I'm very impressed with how you've been able to navigate your career and get to where you are. We, we've just met really, but have been chatting a bit mm-hmm. over email, mm-hmm. but where you are in your career is very admirable. And I'm sure that a lot of more junior and mid-level folks are like, whoa, especially people of color are like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> Get me there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm sure that they're also having that little person on their shoulder that we've spoken about. So I'm curious, what are ways that you've started to navigate imposter syndrome that have helped shape your career in an effective way? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think that all in all, it's really getting comfortable with the voice as opposed to trying to silence it. I think that when you focus on the silencing part, ironically, it gets louder. Like if you imagine like if you're in a room with a number, like five or six different sounds, and you start focusing on that on one of those six sounds, it feels louder, right? Because your brain is now putting all its attention towards that. So the same thing happens with imposter syndrome. So the focus shouldn't be silencing it. The focus should be getting comfortable with it. In the same way that like if you're in a meeting, like a boring meeting and someone's talking, like a bunch of people are talking and you kind of like get used to it, all of a sudden you don't hear it anymore, right? And you kind of like drift away and zone out and focus on something else. It's the same goal you're trying to achieve with that voice, that figurative voice in your head, right? So then now the question becomes like, okay, well, how do I go about getting comfortable with that voice? And a lot of it just comes through repetition, right? Of like trying to adopt a mindset shift. And I think that one of those things that helps with that is just this recognition that everyone feels impostery about something. I think that mm-hmm. one of the reasons why the voice kind of gets amplified in our heads is because as it's speaking, quote unquote, it's making us feel like we are the only person that feels that, right? Mm-hmm. But everyone feels it about something, right? And once you realize totally. that, you kind of almost like get some sense of comfort in that realization that you're not alone and you start mm-hmm. taking power away from that voice. Again, it's not going to go away its sting will kind of like come down a little bit, right? I think another thing too, is to preoccupy yourself with the growth part of the growth mindset, instead of the focusing on that voice. And I think that one of the best ways to grow, you know, outside of like saying like, I want to grow is to understand how you grow or, you know, to get a little bit more specific, understanding how you learn, right? And I actually wish that this was taught in like education systems, like as Mm -hmm. part of like teaching people things like math and blah, 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 blah. I wish there was some element of like helping kids you know, probably in middle school, like once they're past, you know, their their zero to seven like years of, of core development to understand like how do you as an individual in this world learn specifically, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, nowadays we have a lot of like self-help books and all that stuff that kind of like try and frameworkize everything into yeah. like first this and this and this. And then people try and apply those things like cookie cutter and then like it doesn't apply, it doesn't work and then they kind of lose motivation. And then all of a sudden that voice starts creeping back in and you start getting comfortable with where you are and all of a sudden it's a fixed mindset again, right? So what do I mean by like uniquely learning? It means like how do you as a person, you know, to some degree naturally absorb information and then make some behavioral change based off of it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the easiest ways that people can identify how they uniquely learn is to think about spaces where they are growing really quickly without actually even really thinking about it and assessing like, what is it that I do in that realm that achieves that outcome, right? So I remember having like a one-on-one with someone on my team and he was talking about like, yeah, I'm trying to get better at this, this, and this. And like, 
you know, I did this, this, and this to try and do that, but it's not working for me, right? Like I started this thing two, three days and I stopped and like, ah, like, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I can tell you what I do. I don't think it's going to necessarily work for you, right? So I asked him, like, how do you learn? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, tell me about one of your hobbies. And he's like, well, I love playing video games. And I'm like, okay, are you good? And he's like, yeah, I'm actually pretty good at video games. So I'm like, okay, at some point you were not good. And then you became good over time, right? So what would you say is like a common thing that you've done over the years that has led to you getting better at video games? And he said, oh, well, like I play back. I like watch all my, my recordings. He's like, when I play, I literally am recording my gameplay. And then I'll watch that playback back, right? Mm -hmm. Be like, oh, I did that. I should have done that. I did that. I should have done that. I'm like, okay, awesome. Like we just unlocked something, right? Like you learn through like, not repetition, but through like, kind of like recapping to some degree, right? Like mm-hmm. looking back, assessing what you did well, didn't do well, and then like making some iteration based off of that. So we were like, okay, let's try and like apply this in the context of work, right? So, you know, I'm not pitching Lattice here, but I guess I am. <laughs> in our product suite, we have this product called Updates, right? And like a manager can turn it on for their direct report. And every week at the end of the week, we'll ask them some set of questions that the manager could customize. It allows the person to kind of like, you know, give the manager some context, right? And I added a question to his weekly update called weekly playback, right? And then I was like, you know, when you reflect on your week, what is something that you did that if you were to now do again, you would do differently, right? And it started just creating this forcing function of him applying the same way he learns in video games to how he learns at work for like this new discipline or a new skill that he was trying to develop, right? Mm -hmm. When I think about myself, I'm not a playback person, right? I'm a framework person. Like when I think about something in the abstract and I figure out that like, okay, this plus this equals that, or this plus this equals that, then I start to create systems for myself. And then that is how I grow, right? But I didn't realize this until Teespring. Like I, I went through a good chunk of my life and career without knowing how I learned. And as mm-hmm. soon as I learned how I learned, it started unlocking how I grew because now I started yeah. investing in learning practices that would actually like yield some outcome for me, right? So I know that the origin of this question was like, imposter syndrome, how you deal with it. The reason why I'm now getting to like how you learn is because like, you know, if we're talking about trying to not quiet the voice, but kind of getting comfortable with it and like Mm -hmm. lessening its sting, it's realized that like everyone's dealing with it. So you're not alone, right? But the goal is not to quiet it, but to kind of like distract yourself from it. And that Mm -hmm. the best way to distract yourself from it is to grow. But the best way to grow is to learn how you uniquely learn. I love that answer. I love that answer so much. And the first question that pops into my mind is, so you gave the example of the of the person on your team, of giving mm-hmm. them a bit more awareness of how they learn and specifically giving them an example of what you do as a hobby and how you get better at that. Is there any other like tactical approach of how folks can learn how they learn? Yeah. So I think that the example of the hobby was his. And I think that it's probably the most universal method I can think of for helping someone answer this question for themselves, which is, you know, coming back to where our conversation even started with like mindset, not being this binary thing, it being a spectrum and it not being one thing for your whole life, but it, you know, being, you can break it down to different aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. By that definition, everyone has a growth mindset about something. And it's Mm -hmm. like identifying what that thing is for you and then Mm -hmm. starting to diagnose to some degree, what did growth look like for you? Like, how did it come about? And there's a nine out of 10 chance, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm just kind of saying (laughs) that, that, 
that method, that thing that led to that growth could be applied to other aspects of your life, right? So in the case of this person on my team, playing back things worked for him in the context of gaming. And we were like, okay, let's try it in the context of work, right? So maybe someone's hobby is, you know, gardening, right? And the best way that they learn is not to like read a book on gardening, but to listen to a podcast on gardening as they're gardening, right? Mm -hmm. So then they're kind of like, okay, I'm the kind of person that basically learns by doing hypothetically. Like if, if that was your realization, that's kind of what it's pointing to, right? So that means that if you are doing workshops and all that stuff for other aspects of your life, it might help. But if you're sitting down and reading a book for other aspects of your life, it might not actually in fact help, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, again, that's what it really is, right? Finding those areas in your life where you have that growth mindset and kind of like extracting what is that thing that leads to my growth and then testing that first before other things and other aspects of your life. One, I got the chills when you were talking. So I don't know if anyone else did. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like a lot of what you're alluding to is experimentation and also mm -hmm. like systems thinking, which is innately a skill that designers harness. Yeah. So it's testing out and seeing, okay, how does this feel for me? Okay, nope, <laughs> not working. Exactly. exactly. Or, oh, okay, yeah. this, this feels nice. Okay, let's integrate this and keep on experimenting, which I feel like is one of the like best gifts of working in product, of adopting mm -hmm. this experiment mindset. But I feel like it can also be used in such a concrete and beneficial way also to your own life yeah. and being able to connect the dots and systematize things, not in a like robotic way, but in a mm -hmm. way that feels more true to you. So you can really lean into those areas of growth. Yes. Yeah. So like shifting gears a bit, one other aspect that we wanted to cover that is very much related to what we've already spoken about, but is the importance of being like adaptive. And so I'm curious what being adaptive means to you and what's the necessary skills for designers to develop? Yeah. So what I like is that there's this nice through line with all our topics here mm -hmm. of like, you know, point A and point B being different, you know, yeah. like some, some sort yeah. of change. And I think that's, that's true here as well with like this, like sense of being adaptive or adaptable. I think that you know, it's important to me because especially as a designer, as a manager, as a leader, a lot of my job, a lot of my role is reacting to change while also balancing some like longer term mission or destination, right? And realizing that the origin point and the destination, the path we'll take to get there is not a straight line. It's just a bunch of like this, this, and this, right? This is zigzags. And those zigzags are us being adaptive to certain situations. I think it's also important as a designer because it's very much the nature of our work. If we're talking specifically about digital product designers, right? Digital creators, right? For example, the mission at Lattice is to make work meaningful. It's very big. It's very broad. It's very grand, right? It's not a mission that you ever actually accomplish it's one that you chip away at for some you know duration of time right but the idea of what it means to have meaningful work is a moving target for example in 2019 the way that we define our work is drastically different than the way we now define our work in 2021 
right? And COVID has <laughs> been like a big accelerant change agent in that regard. Yeah. If we did not adapt and we continue to be dogmatic about what we believe we wanted to build in the future in 2019, then there's a high chance that by 2025, our product no longer connects, relates, or solves the problems that our customers are facing, right? So we have to be adaptive even in the things that we're choosing to build, right? Being adaptive as a designer also is true of just our environment, right? Like when you think about the process of design, one of my, like I'm, I'm really a big advocate of all these design programs and boot camps that are emerging. But one critique I've had of some, not necessarily all, but some that I've gotten a little bit closer to is how assembly line-esque the, the process is being taught, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, first do this, then this, then this, then this. And you see it in some of the case studies, right? Like, you know, someone graduates from that program, they put their work together, and then you're reviewing their website. And it's like, you know, if you open up three of their case studies, the only thing that's different is the name of the project and maybe the screenshot of the mock. But yeah. like almost everything else, even down to like the time of the project and when I did research and how many people I spoke to, it's just boom, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And the shock that those people experience when they enter the workforce is that, oh, crap, I got to be super adaptive. It's not that linear, right? Like what yeah. happens if I don't have any customers yet, right? I can't talk to five, five customers then, right? Mm -hmm. Or what happens if like, you know, our sample size or the size of our user base is too small for me to achieve statistical significance? Or what happens if we have this technical constraint or this or that or the other, right? The way that you are still successful against all those odds is through being adaptive. It's through recognizing that your process is not this assembly line, but it's rather a toolkit. And that the actual skill set to harness is understanding when do I apply what? What thing in my toolkit is best applied to what situation, right? Mm -hmm. And then when I now understand my situation and I understand the constraints of my situation, then I can begin to adapt, right? I can pull out this toolkit, but this item from my toolkit, but modified in this way or that way to achieve that outcome. Oh, I don't have any customers. Let me go talk to my friends who could be customers, right? Like that's where that adaptive thing comes in, right? So mm -hmm. I actually see this as like a critical skill set to any designer who's hoping to, you know, really impact their customers because it's just so true of the nature of our work. And it's so true of like the nature of like the environment in which we work, like our processes, our cross-functional partners and all that stuff. So, yeah. It's such a shock. <laughs> it's such a shock mm -hmm. for both. <laughs> I've, re I've reviewed so many, many, many portfolios and yeah. I very much resonate with the, I agree with the approach of it's helpful and grounding when someone first starts off is, okay, like this is the process that you do. But given that baseline foundation, <laughs> that's definitely something that I bring up to most people that I talk to of it's just not how it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. like you'll be you'll be lucky if you have a researcher. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You'll be lucky yeah. if you can talk to your customers. You'll be lucky if you can <laughs> like all these things that are mm -hmm. put like woven in as almost expectations. Mm -hmm. When you're in school, learning more of this innate process mm -hmm. is not the case. And so I, I love that we're highlighting this topic. But one thing that I do want to dive in a bit deeper is similar, adaptive, similar to being resilient. It's important to have a certain capacity and being honest with that capacity where if you're having, whether it be just a hard day, hard week, hard year, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it may be, being honest with, okay, this is really all that I can do right now. But I guess 
The underlying question is how can designers increase their capacity or their ability to be more adaptive? Yeah. So before I answer that, there's something you you just mentioned there that I wholeheartedly agree with, which is like, you know, sustainability is a very big aspect to all of this. Oh, geez. That's my, <laughs> my echo. That's yeah. It just, it just triggered, but yeah. So sustainability is a key aspect to all of this because you know, it's, we shouldn't really treat our life like a race. And when we are overly fixated on just like grow, 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 change, 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 you never actually really get to experience the benefits, I guess. Right. And it's like a point I was making earlier around, like all these things are on a spectrum and there's a cost to being overly, you know, on one side or the other, but now bringing it back to your question around like this, like adaptiveness and like increasing your capacity. I think that ways to increase your capacity in a sustainable fashion are some mindset shifts. A lot of these things come back to mindset shifts. So one of them is obsessing over the problem instead of the solution. I think that when you obsess over a problem, then you begin to recognize when the problem has morphed or evolved to some degree, right? And then you begin to naturally adapt your solution to that newly evolved problem. If you are obsessing over the solution, then your view of the problem has become static, right? Because you viewed it for some period of time and then you shifted your mindset to the solution. So now the problem is static and then now you're focusing on the solution, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem may be evolving as you're only fixating on the solution. And by the time you get the solution out, the problem has, has changed so much that you've now built a solution that no one actually wants, right? Mm -hmm. So just that simple one of obsessing over the problem, not the solution, highly, highly valuable, right? Another one, which is a very obvious one for being adaptive is seeking feedback and being open mm -hmm. to it. Because, you know, what does adaptiveness truly come down to? It's recognizing change, right? Mm -hmm. And then changing yourself as a result of it, right? So you can recognize change by looking at the thing, like, you know, obsessing over the problem. You can also recognize change by taking feedback from others who can be also recognizing the change for you, right? Mm -hmm. But then again, that second half of being adaptive is how you respond, right? So if you seek the feedback, you also need to be open to act off of that feedback, right? And then I, I think another one is just like changing just your, your overall philosophy to understand that change is the only constant, right? If you kind of like accept that, then all these other things become a little bit easier, you know? But the sustainability aspect here is, is still a key like underlying point, which is to say that as you go and try and embark in, in doing all this stuff in your career and other aspects of your life, like there needs to be a balance between who you are today and who you want to be, right? Where your product is today and where you want it to be, where your relationships are today and where you want them to be. You kind of like need to strike mm -hmm. that balance for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise you actually run the risk of burning out. And I know that when people talk about burnout, they always think about it in the context of like working hours, right? But it actually pertains to any aspect of your life. You can actually burn out on your hobby. You can burn out on a relationship, right? By not striking that healthy balance, you know? And the key to that balance is to ensure that you can actually maintain this growth mindset and this, this lifelong learning through the course of your life, as opposed to through a sprint or chapter of it. I'm going to leave it at that. And I'll reflect on a personal experience and then we'll move to a couple of wrap-up questions. Mm -hmm. There is such a part of myself that really aligns with this like doer, this achiever, this sprinting mindset. And so for anyone that's listening where it's like, but I want to do all the things. <laughs> I'm here with you. I totally get it. But at the same time, it's being honest with yourself and having 
and weaning more towards balance and knowing that's actually what's going to get you farther in the long run and not just doing sprint, rest, sprint, rest, <laughs> sprint, yeah, rest. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just not, not sustainable. Yeah. Like you can have a growth mindset and choose not to do anything, you mm-hmm. know, like, like for a yeah. period of time, like there are aspects of my life where I'm like, yeah, I want to get better at that. I'm committed to getting better at that. I'm choosing not to do anything in regards to that right now for X, Y, and Z reasons, right? Exactly. My inaction today is a decision. It's not a sign of being fixed, you know? I love that and very much resonate with that. A couple last questions as we wrap up and at a bit of a, like a higher level. So all of what we spoke about today is all bubbles up into like the higher like principle of emotional intelligence or EQ. And so I'm curious from your perspective, why it's important for designers to invest in their EQ. Yeah, that's a great question. I think similarly to adaptiveness, EQ is another critical lever or input to being an impactful designer, right? You know, the majority of us are building products or solutions for people who are not our carbon copy. There's some difference between us and them. And therefore, if we stand any chance of actually being able to deliver solutions that impact them and benefit them, we have to have high emotional intelligence, right? Or at least be committed to developing that. And then again, it's also true of the workplace, right? Like design is not in a vacuum. It is, you know, there's design with a capital D, which is more a methodology. And then there's design with the lowercase T, which is like our practice, like what we actually do, right? Day to day. But both of them can not only be achieved by designers. It requires our cross-functional peers, whether it's engineering, product, marketing, sales, what have you, support, right? So if we stand any chance of working effectively with our cross-functional partners to do more as a collective whole, again, EQ comes in, right? So I can't actually think of a scenario in which a designer can be impactful without having EQ, right? Like, you know, one might now start responding to me and be like, well, you know, like someone who could be a great motion designer or like prototyper without, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool and all. But the key word in my statement was being impactful right? You can create a thing, but if you don't have the means by which to get it out there in a meaningful way that impacts people, then you're not being impactful, right? So adaptiveness, resilience, iterativeness, that's a word. EQ, these are all critical inputs to being successful designers. Yeah. Amazing. One last question is if you could ask one thing of the audience, maybe something they could get started on or anything in relation to what we spoke about today, whether it be growth mindset or being adaptive or getting from point A to point B or imposter syndrome, what would it be? Yeah. So I'm always looking for new ways to grow our sense of adaptiveness on our team and the company by extension. So I'm always on the lookout for learning how other people cultivate a culture of adaptiveness in their teams and broader orgs, you know, because this kind of like comes back to one of the inputs I put of like seeking feedback, right? Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to just I'm obsessing over the problem, or this is not really a problem, but more so an opportunity of like, how do we cultivate this? But I'm also open to learning and hearing from others. So that would be my question. Like, how do other people cultivate this for themselves or for their teams? Beautiful. So yeah, for folks listening, definitely reach out maybe to Jared on any social or any anything like that. And we can get this conversation going. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jared. I loved the like flow of our conversation and and thank you for the wisdom and inspiration and tactical advice for folks. I learned a lot in this conversation. I'm sure folks listening did as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. This is awesome. This is fun. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E dot com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.